Rarecast listeners, coming together to help each other is what the rare disease community does best. As the COVID-19 outbreak continues to spread around the world, you'll have questions. Global Genes has created a resource page with information to help. Please visit www.globalgenes.org to see the resource list. And if you have links to add, please send them to advocacy at globalgenes.org. Stay safe and remember, we're all in this together. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Gene therapies to treat retinal diseases promise to reverse blinding conditions, but the approach most gene developers take is to replace a mutated gene underlying a genetic disease with a functional version of that gene. The problem is that this approach can only address a narrow set of patients with each gene therapy. Ocugen, which is developing gene therapies for eye disease, believes it can treat a range of rare retinal conditions with a single therapy by introducing a functional gene that has the effect of modifying the expression of multiple genes at once. We spoke to Shankar Musanari, CEO of Ocugen, about the company's modifier gene therapy platform, how a single gene therapy can work on multiple eye diseases, and how it may alter the economics for gene therapy for rare eye conditions. Shankar, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan, for inviting me. We're going to talk about retinal degenerative diseases, gene therapies, and your efforts to develop a gene therapy that may be able to address a range of these conditions rather than targeting a single mutation underlying them. Perhaps we can start with retinal degenerative diseases. What are the range of conditions this includes, and how big a problem do they represent? Uh, if you take the ophthalmology eye space, yeah, the retinal diseases is a major problem because there are so many diseases currently they have a significant unmet medical need. There are uh, rare diseases known as inherited retinal diseases that are genetically transmitted uh, through generations and family. And uh, there are also um, degenerative diseases such as, you know, macular degeneration. They're, they're a big disease burden. So on one side, you have rare diseases, which are under 200,000 population in the U.S. So you treat that, and there are no therapies available. And then you've got diseases such as dry age-related macular degeneration. That's a big disease. It's a significant unmet medical need. In the U.S. alone, you have 9 to 10 million patients struggling with this disease. What role do genetics play in these conditions? Do they tend to be rare monogenic diseases, or is it across the board? Yeah, a lot of these uh, rare diseases are, uh, as I mentioned, you know, genetically um, transmitted. So you have, in most cases, you got a single mutation, and uh, there is only one uh, product available in the market today 
uh, for treating it. Um, it's uh, for RPE65 gene mutation um, for an inherited retinal disease by Spark Therapeutics. And uh, that covers about 600 patients. And so that's, that's the, that's, that's just an example. And uh, there are so many rare diseases. If you take, uh, disease such as retinitis pigmentosa and just an umbrella uh, disease and uh, that has got about 100,000 patients in the U.S. About 60% of the patients have the genetic mutations identified and remaining 40% is random. Those 60%, the mutations we have today are about 150 mutations. So that's, that's the complexity of these diseases you're dealing with. You've got 150 mutations under one bigger disease such as RP and, uh, and, and if you have to develop like a monogenic, like a single mutation at a time therapeutic product such as others are trying, that means you need to develop more than 130 products to treat this population. How do these diseases generally manifest themselves and progress? Uh, the, again, the, the, it depends on a very specific mutation. And if I take the rare diseases, such as inherited retinal diseases, uh, I'm talking about such as retinitis pigmentosa, within that, there are a lot of subsets of diseases. And depending on the mutation, you know, if you take uh, uh, mutations such as uh, rhodopsin maybe progressing relatively, um, you know, faster than other mutations, um, which could be like MRT3. And uh, therefore, um, I think most of these patients, these, these are like from the childhood itself, they have the disease because they're genetically mapped. And as the disease progresses, by the time they're in mid-40s, and uh, most likely in many of these cases, may become legally blind. So you're talking about a um, pretty rapid progression. And, uh, I mean, many of the, as I mentioned before, in 40s, they can become legally blind. And in general, is, what's the prognosis for these patients? I mean, are they left to just gradually lose their eyesight without any available treatments? Yeah, great question. Yes. I think uh, in the, many of these patients, when you're talking about rare diseases, inherited retinal degenerations, um, only... The, we have about 2,500 retinal specialists in this country, smart physicians, and uh, they have, um, you know, some tools such as, you know, ocular coherence tomography, which is a non-invasive tool, and when they go for regular checkups, they can only look at and find out, you know, how fast your retina is degenerating, and based on that, you know, they can prepare you, oh, within like 10 years, within 15 years, you know, you may end up uh, legally blind, and so you can prepare for your life. Currently, there are no ther therapies to treat these patients. Only thing they can tell you is how to prepare your life, which, which is which is very, very debilitating and disheartening. And that's, again, on the inherited retinal diseases side. But on the macular degeneration, again, uh, you got uh, wet macular degeneration the, and diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema. These are big diseases. And they have um, therapies available in the market for part of the population. So, so those are like big diseases. You know, you're talking about millions of patients, and uh, there are therapies based on anti-vascular endothelial derived growth factors. They call them 
anti-VEGF medications such as Ilia, Lucentis, uh, which are in the marketplace. And uh, the only issue with those um, therapeutics are some of the patients are non-responders to those therapies. So even though there are medications for certain retinal diseases, again, not entire population is covered with those therapeutics today. So there is also significant unpreserved populations in some of these retinal diseases. Eye diseases have been among the earliest targets for gene therapy. Why have we seen this early focus on eye diseases for this new modality? Uh, good, good question. Um, if you take the eye, right, when you talk about gene therapy, I mean, you're using a um, adeno-associated viral vector to deliver a gene to go to the certain target place. And first thing, I think, from a regulatory perspective, one would be very careful about safety of this gene therapy. So if you take the eye, even though, I mean, you have a neural network which is linked into that, the eye is a, you know, it's, it's like a pocket. Therefore, I think from the safety perspective, people, experts in the field believe it may be a safer place to start targeting looking at these very innovative transformative gene therapies. That's why um, they started with eye diseases. I take it yeah, th yeah. there's also an issue of the deliverability of these therapies. Right, yeah, that's that's another, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So the deliverability, you yeah, are right. I think with eye being a pocket, you know, you can, uh, you can get to the, surgically get to the retina where you want the gene to be delivered through AV vector effectively. And uh, so it's difficult to do that with, uh, you know, certain places or certain organs. But I, I think you can target nicely. That's another reason. Uh, effective delivery and safety. We've seen the potential for gene therapies to benefit people with inherited eye disease. You made reference to Luxterna, the Spark Therapeutics gene therapy. One challenge, though, seems to be, as you've talked about, is that this is a, a mutation-at-a-time approach. What's the traditional approach taken with gene therapy? So the, that's, the, that's the current approach. That's the difference between um, our gene therapy program and other gene therapies in the marketplace are under development today. If you take Luxterna, as I mentioned before, they're talking about targeting a specific mutation, RP65 gene mutation. So that's a traditional gene approach. So you have a non-functioning gene, then you deliver a functioning gene, and uh, then you control the disease progression and rescue. In this case, what we are doing is we have nuclear genes. These are, these are called nuclear hormone receptor genes. They are like master genes in the retina. That means these genes influence many gene networks and underlined gene expressions. Therefore, when there is an issue, when you deliver the master gene, it can actually bring homeostasis to the retina, then bringing normal cell function and health. Therefore, each of our genes can target many diseases, same product. It can work in many mutations. I know when you so talk about your platform, you use the term genetic modifier. What, what does a gene, gene that is a genetic modifier exactly do? 
So, as I mentioned, the, the traditional approach, non-functioning gene, you give a, you know, a specific um, a functioning gene of that defect, and uh, the non-functioning gene is still there. In this case, what we are doing is we're not trying to replace that or give the functioning gene augmenting that. It's called gene augmentation. In our case, since our genes influence gene networks and expression of many other genes, and round about, they bring a homeostatus to the retina. That's why it's a modifier gene, because what it's doing is it is modifying function of other genes, and by which it's restoring normal cell function and health of retina. In March, a paper in Nature Gene Therapy reported on preclinical data of your experimental therapy, OCU400. What is OCU400? OCU400 is based on its AAV NR2E3. Um, NR2E3 is one of the nuclear genes, which is a master gene. We are targeting um, with this uh, many inherited retinal diseases. So the Nature publication, in fact, goes through five different animal models with the same product, same single product applied against five different animal models, and those models represent five different human diseases. In all those diseases, there is incredible amount of data generated by our collaborator from Harvard Medical School, Dr. Hader. So in every model she shows, there is a significant you know, rescue in, uh, based on immunochemistry, histology, and ERG. And uh, again, showing the same product is, has the ability to rescue in multiple mutations. So it is actually demonstrating effectively the modifier function of this gene. So what's happening in these different mutations that this regulatory gene is able to restore? Do we, do we know why yeah. these genes aren't functioning as they should? You know, is, is it the mutation itself? Is there something that throws off the balance of protein activity? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good point. Yeah. When you have a mutation, right, you're not, you're not expressing the right protein. It's a mutation. So you need a, um, you know, right gene that, that specific, um, you know, spot. And if you fix that, then you, you produce the, you know, appropriate protein. So in this case, what it does, these nuclear genes, or we call them master genes, they control gene networks responsible for, you know, cell development metabolism, inflammation, survival. So when you influence these multiple gene networks and underlined gene expressions, many gene expressions, not one, and they influence, they bring the homeostasis. So in each and every case, they, they have these single mutations identified, you know, and what this gene is doing is it's, it's uh, affecting those gene networks and underlying gene expressions of many genes and bringing homeostasis. And in that paper, she also shows when you give um, this RQ400 or AAV MRT3 to normal animal models, increased levels of this doesn't have any off-target effects. That's very important from safety perspective, right? I mean, if it's regulating our genes, influences many genes, first question somebody is going to ask, oh, then what about the safety of this? And that's what also that paper demonstrates looking at multiple 
uh, you know, um, ways of showing by expressing this NR2A3 augmentation in a normal animal model has no off-target effects. It's safe. I think there's a general impression that when you have a, a genetic mutation that leads to a, a disease state, there's something broken in the gene that prevents it from producing the proteins it's supposed to. This suggests that there may be something outside of the gene that can compensate or correct for it. Is, how, how does restoring homeostasis allow a gene that's mutated to function properly? So the, so the mutated gene is always there, right? I mean, even with the traditional gene augmentation, gene therapy, unless you do the CRISPR to replace that mutation in that gene at the specific site, um, you still have a non-functioning gene. What you're doing is you're augmenting with a functioning gene. It starts producing that protein. So at least it'll stop the disease progression from there on. And in this case, again, the way nuclear genes work, they're higher up in the regulatory pathway. And so they can control many functions and many networks. And so indirectly, um, you know, the, the analogy is if, if, um, you take like, you know, we take like, you know, we take our human beings, right? If, if, if something is not functioning, let's say one of your hand or something, you, you figure out a way to come around it and, and train yourself to use other limbs and then you function still and you get over that. And just by just giving a simple, simple analogy. And so in this case, the nuclear genes by influencing other gene networks in expressions, it, it brings actually homeostatus to the retina. Which, which is, you know, um, which is a good effect and very positive. And that's why, in fact, the data actually supports it. Is, does this suggest uh, an approach that could be used more broadly as a different way to act on gene therapies than we're seeing today? Is this something uh, limited yeah, to the absolutely, eye? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, uh, if, if you take, uh, the approach I gave you, like you take retinitis pigmentosa. I mean, the Luxurna currently, which is in the market, covers one mutation of all those 100,000 patients, which covers less than 1,000 patients. And so you got people, of 60% of the patients have 150 mutations, plus there is another 40% mutations are not identified in the random. So all these patients are looking for therapies. If you take a single product approach, this is a very expensive proposition, right? The gene therapy is a very complex molecules, and uh, the development and manufacturing today, we estimate, would cost anywhere from 25 to $35 million to move the program for a single product from preclinical all the way to, uh, you know, filing the BLA. And it is going to take enormous amount of time, about eight to ten years from the start, to get the drug all the way and get approval. So during this process, if you want to work on another mutation, you start from scratch because it's a different molecule. Therefore, in our case, it's the same product works for multiple mutations based on the data we are shown. So if you take this broad spectrum approach of RP, you know, once we go into the clinic, we're able to prove you know, it's safe. It it works just like these animal models. We demonstrate in multiple mutations the same product is effective. So 
we cut down significant capital and we cut down significant timelines. That means once you prove it, safety and efficacy in multiple animal models, I mean, we will be hopefully one day go after broad spectrum RP indication. That's our ultimate goal. So our platform technology being a breakthrough has that power. That's the difference between, you know, our platform gene therapy technology compared to others. And what's the path forward? Uh, the path forward is um, we are currently completing preclinical studies, including toxicology studies, and uh, we are producing our product. We have a strategic partnership we announced last year. <laughs> As I mentioned before, gene therapy manufacturing and development is very expensive. Significant capital is needed. So we formed a, a strategic partnership with a, a, a good-sized biotech company. They have a market cap of around $2.53 billion, and they have excellent expertise, very good facilities, state-of-the-art facilities, and they are taking care of the manufacturing. So currently, they're manufacturing, so we are continuing to do what we agreed with FDA, all the preclinical work, including um, preclinical talk studies. We are initiated this year, and our goal is to complete all the preclinical work complete the clinical supplies for manufacturing, and get into the clinic next year with our first program in gene therapy. Shankar Masanori, CEO of Ocugen. Shankar, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.